know, it's, uh, as, um, as Fred said, and as I said earlier, we are starting a new series. Well done. You guys are good. <clears throat> um, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a little bit nervous about it, if I'm honest. I have way too many notes. Like, if I read all this, we're going to be here until lunchtime, so cancel your lunch plans. Lock the doors, Andy. They ain't going anywhere. Just kidding. Uh, half an hour. We're all good. But uh, I think what I'm going to do for the purpose of my own uh, sake is pray, and then we're going to get into it. So, Lord, we, we do thank you for um, seasons. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God of um, speaking into our present time and our present moment, Lord. Uh, and, and I thank you, Lord, that this talk, this series that we embark on over the next few weeks is ordained for such a time as this, Lord, that you have a purpose for it, and that your word will not return void, but it would accomplish that which you have set forth to do, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for this morning and the rest of the weeks that we will see fruit from this, Lord God. I ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're going to uh, look at uh, a piece of scripture. You can find it in John 17, 20, uh, 24. Uh, and we're in a new series called One. Um, and the reason we're in this series is because I was reading a while ago Jesus' prayer to the Heavenly Father before, as you know the story, he is crucified. And he prays for his disciples and he prays for all those who will believe. And I was very struck with a particular verse that we'll read in a moment. And it kind of jumped out at me. And I've spent a lot of time just soaking and meditating and seeking the Lord on it. And, and so we're going to look at it together. It's found in John 17, as I said, in verses 20 to 24. This is in the middle of, <clears throat> of as I said, uh, a passage where Jesus is praying um, to the Father. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. Uh, Jesus is our High Priest, as you know. And so I'm going to read these four verses uh, together. It'll be on the screen, or if you're at home, uh, it will be on your device as well. It says this, I do not ask for these only, these being the disciples that he just prayed for, um, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so a.k.a. you and I, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. How many times, who counted, did the word one come up? <clears throat> Four? Five? Well done. Around that, I didn't count it. <clears throat> ah, you thought I'd know. I did count it, but I've forgotten. Um, but the point is, many times very frequent. And it was this word one that kept bouncing around in my head. I'm like, Lord, what, what are you trying to say to us? You know, who is Jesus praying about, guys? He's praying about you and I, isn't he? And this is the prayer from Jesus about you and I. So I reckon we should pay attention to this. Of course, we should pay attention to everything that Jesus says. And so what is Jesus praying about? He's saying that you and I, all the believers, would be one just as the Father and Son are one. That we would be one, just as the Father and Son are one. What? I mean, I read this, I'm like, I kind of, that sounds great. What on earth does that mean? Try, have you tried to get your head around that? 
that we would be one as the Father and Son are one. What does that even mean? <coughs> what is exactly does it mean that the Father and Son are one and therefore what does it mean that we are one? And that's what I've been soaking in for a long time and, and that is what we're going to dive deeply into over these next few weeks. And this week really serves as a foundation um, to support the rest of the weeks. We've got some amazing speakers coming up over these next weeks. And so I want you to get your metaphorical scuba gear on because we're going to dive deep. Uh, ooh, got some ooze there. I want to see how many metaphors I can throw into this talk. So I've got one there already. Um, and uh, I want to unpack this together. And really, when you read this text, there's four questions, really, that the text proposes to us or poses to us. And this is what I want to look at this morning. Because we're going so deep, I really wanted to hang this talk on some kind of key signposts or framework for us to understand this. Otherwise, we might get a bit lost. The four questions, really, are this. What does it mean that the Father and Son are one, and how? I think we need to understand that, right? Before we know what it means for us to be one, we need to get that first. Second of all, what does it mean for those who believe to be one? Fair question. Why is one being important? Why bother? Why is it important? And third, fourthly, how is being one achieved? How is that even possible? And so at the end of this morning, you're going to answer, be able to answer those four questions. And as I said, this therefore is going to form the basis and the foundation of the next few weeks as we look at this together. So let's start then with what does it mean that the Father and Son are one? It says in verse 21 that they may, this is Jesus speaking, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, it's fair to say we now touch on a truth so deep, so wide, so beautiful that I touch on it with some level of trepidation, if I'm honest, because for fear of confusing you or not getting this right. But I think the reality is I am going to be unable in the 25, 30 minutes that we have to convey the beauty of the relationship between the Father and Son. But what I want to do is give you enough that you can understand what we mean when we say the Father and Son are one. And you see, Scripture shows us that there exists God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as three distinct persons. They are three distinct persons. And yet, Scripture also states that there is only one God. Now, let's look at two scriptures that show that in the Old and the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, O God, the Lord is one. The Lord there in capitals, if we see that up on the screen in a moment with the scripture, uh, if we've got that, the Lord it means Jehovah. That's the name of God, okay? And then in James 2, 19, it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So both from an Old and New Testament, there is the understanding that God is one, and yet the scriptures talk about three distinct persons. And so the truth of the existence of three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the truth that they are God, and the truth that there is but one God, leads us to the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? That's what we're touching on here. I told you we're going deep. Have you all checked your air supply? You're okay? You're breathing? Good, well done. So, essentially, there's three things to the Trinity. Number one, God is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. And number three, there is one God. Now, how on earth do you square that? How on earth do you square that? Got some smiles at the front. It's like, what are you embarking on? Wow, you're brave. I know, tell me about it. It's worth saying you can't fully square this. Okay? 
there remains an element of mystery. But, of course, a mystery doesn't mean it isn't true. Just like a murder mystery, like if you're playing Cluedo like we do with our kids, the presence of the mystery doesn't mean or doesn't negate the reality of the murder, does it? Go with me on this. And so it is with the doctrine of the Trinity. Just because it is a mystery to us and we don't fully understand it doesn't negate the reality of it. All right? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But, you see, for some, throughout church history, they have looked to remove the sense of mystery and in so doing have to deny one of those three truths that we looked at. Because you can't square them all up, or triangle them all up, you have to cancel one of those out in order for it to make sense. So, three areas of heresy. Number one, modalism. This is the belief that there are not three distinct persons. So they'll believe the other two, but there's not three distinct persons. What happens is God expresses himself in different ways. So God the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, and then the Holy Spirit. So that's called modalism. And actually... It's called oneness theology, and you would be surprised in some threads, not all streams of Pentecostalism, I can't even say the word, you know what I mean. There is a sense of, there is, they, they would talk about a oneness theology, and you'll be quite surprised. The second one is Arianism. This is there exists only one God, and that the Son, therefore, Jesus, is a created being and not divine. That is the Jehovah Witnesses' position on how they try to square this. They would say that Jesus is not God, he is not divine. And then you've got the last one, tritheism. This is that there are three distinct persons, but they are therefore three distinct gods. And that's Mormonism and Hinduism. Okay? So these three heresies have kind of come out because it's very difficult to understand the Trinity. And so what I'm going to do, attempt to do, is add a little bit of clarity, because before we can go on the next few weeks, which won't require any scuba gear, possibly, we really do need to get this, because if we don't understand the relationship between the Father and the Son, we won't understand what it means for us to have a relationship. That's why we have to go down before we can go up. So, um, let's look at two truths about Jesus, and indeed this applies to the Holy Spirit and God the Father. It is this, that Jesus coexisted and pre-existed with God the Father. Let me say that again. Jesus coexisted and pre-existed with God the Father, okay? This is important. Right, the first one, coexisted. You see, when coexisting implies a distinct person, doesn't it? Because you cannot, you, you, you coexist with another distinct person. Steph and I coexist in a happy marriage, most of the time, when we don't have arguments, when I'm not wrong and she's right. Um, we coexist because we are distinct persons. And as I stated earlier, there are many that would deny this truth. And as I said, this is re referred to modalism or oneness theology. And as I said to you, this is the, the belief that there does not exist three distinct persons. And in fact, it's just God showing up in different ways. Um, but we see in Scripture that there is a distinction between God the Son and God the Father. Now, Wayne Grudrum, you might have heard of him. He wrote Systematic Theology. He's a theologian. He said this, God the Father and God the Son are distinct persons, and the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. That's what we're looking at. And we need to understand the relationship. So let's touch on some points in Scripture where it shows Jesus the Son and Jesus the Father as being distinct. Number one, the Father sent Jesus. 
The father didn't send himself in a different guise, okay? We get that. Number two, Jesus prayed to the father. We just read that. Jesus didn't pray to himself. That would be a charade, wouldn't it? An illusion. Jesus and the father have a love for each other. We read that in John 3.35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He doesn't give it to his other hand. He gives it to the distinct person of Jesus. Jesus is the only way to the father. And the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism, didn't he? For everyone, in fact, you had the Trinity there. Father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, came upon Jesus, anointed him. So three distinct persons. I think we're all there with that, aren't we? So Jesus coexists with the Father. Now, the second one I said is pre-existed. What does that mean? It simply means they have been together eternally. In other words, Jesus is not a created being. Jesus was not created. I know some people think that Jesus became Jesus when he was born at Bethlehem. That is not the case. Jesus pre-existed with the Father, eternally coexisting with him. Let's read John 1, 1, 3. It'll be on the screen. John says this. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. That's the Greek. It's the created Word. This is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus was with God the Father. And the word was God. There you go, you see. The distinct person of Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. He pre-existed. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. Okay? So this is that anchor text. And I've always read, I remember as a teenager reading John 1, I'm like, this is mind-boggling. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh. It's like, what on earth? But this is talking about Jesus' pre-existence and coexistence with our Heavenly Father, okay? So, having established that Jesus coexists, which means he is a distinct person of the Trinity, and that he pre-existed with, the heaven, with God the Father, which means that he is not created, okay? Then the question, therefore, is how are they God and how are they one? Now, of course, uh, this is where the mystery kicks in. I don't have a full answer for you on this one. Sorry. You can get your money back on your tickets if you're dissatisfied with the service that you've received this morning. Full refunds will be processed in a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> but this is the oneness of how are they They're distinct and they coexist. They're not created, but how are they one? God, well, that is where part of the mystery lies. But having said that, we can see examples of the relationship between the Father and the Son that shows us how they are one, and therefore how we should be one. And that's, that leads us, therefore, into the next question, which is, what does that mean for us to be one? But before we do that, let's look at some examples then. I've got seven of how the, the, the Son and the Father are one. Okay, here we go. I'm going to go through them quickly. Number one, one in image. Jesus is a reflection of the Father. You know, it says um, in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we read it, John 14, 9, Jesus says, if you see me, you'll see the Father. They are one in image, okay? If you see me, you've seen the Father. Number two, they are one in love. Jesus and the Father are one in love, and they have a love for each other. You know, Jesus says in John 5, 20, for the Father loves the Son. They are one in the love that they have for one another. You know, <clears throat> There was a purpose for the Trinity, to use that phrase, before we were created. What do I mean by that? They weren't looking around saying, we're so bored. I'm not sure, I, you know, 
the kids have flown the nest and I don't know what to talk about anymore. There was a love there before we existed. They didn't need to create us in order to love. They are love. God is love. And so they are one in love, that unity of love. Number three, one in purpose. You see, Jesus and his Father work together for the same purpose. What is that? As the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. John 5, 21. Okay? They have the same purpose. There is a unity in purpose. Number four, one in authority. The Father and the Son are one in authority they have. You know, it says that the Father has given Jesus authority to execute judgment. Okay? There is a one in authority. Number five, one through dependency. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is dependent on the Father. There is an interdependency, not an independency. They're not independent of each other. They're interdependent on each other. There's a dependency. Jesus is equal in deity as part of the Trinity, yet submissive in his role as, as, as fully human, as a human being, as the Son of Man when he walked the earth. Number six, one through honor. There's no competitiveness between the, Jesus and the Father, okay? Each recognized the other was to be honored equally. It says in John 5, 23, just as they honor the Father who sent me. So there is a sense of oneness in the honor that they have for one another. And then number seven, one through sacrifice. Jesus seeks his Father's will, not his own. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours. So there you go. There's seven examples of, of, of a modeling of relationship as we're going to embark on what does it mean for us to be one. So even though the full mystery of the oneness of God is something we can't fully fathom, what we do say, see in the scriptures is a model and an example of the oneness that we are called to have just as the Father and the Son have. One in image, one in love, one in purpose, one in authority, one through dependency, one through honor, and one through sacrifice. So let's, let's embark on this next piece then in a bit more detail. Are you with me so far? Does anyone need a new tank? No, you're all good. Anyone need to go up to the surface for a breather? Wonderful, good stuff. Okay. Let's look at, uh, go back to uh, John 17, 21. I just want to read that again. Um, it said, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and I are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay. So here's two things I want to show us in terms of what it means for us to be one. The first thing is we are distinct too. When we look at the Trinity and the relationship of the distinct persons of God, what it shows us is that as we are distinct too. <clears throat> we have different roles. We have been created diff distinct and unique. That is something to be celebrated. You know, I've got to say, I'm going to do some... Um, cultural commentary here for a moment, if you would uh, go with me on this. You know, I think the core of the polarizations that we see in society, you know, the inability or, should I say, choice of intolerance to listen and see each other's points of view, the rise of wokeism, the prevalence of cancel culture, all of this at its heart is the desire for everyone to be the same. That's really what it is. Why do I say that? To blot out our differences and ensure we all think and act in a way in which we believe to be right. Which is ironic, really, because that's not the narrative that's been spun. The narrative that's been spun is we should all be tolerant to one another. But I've got to say, I think the opposite is true. 
I was reminded of George Orwell's 1984 book that I read at school when I did English. Anyone read 1984? Yeah. The Thought Police. Rather scary to see that play out now. I mean, I've seen YouTube videos of people innocently talking about different appointing views, and their videos are just taken off. <laughs> oh, boy, don't get me started on this rabbit trail, because I'll be here for a long time. But I think we've got to just be aware, church. Listen, culture would love to cancel the Bible. Because the truth is, it's not the same as the prevailing culture would suggest. But we're being tolerant. No, I don't think so. I think you've been very intolerant, actually. Because you can't manage a conversation with differing views. You know, I guess it's a drive for unity, really, isn't it? I mean, that's what essentially society's trying to do, but it's a manufactured one through a process of sameness to try and rub out our distinctiveness. Listen, unity doesn't come from eliminating our distinctiveness. It comes from understanding we are distinct and created to be one with one another in Christ. Yes. Unity doesn't come from eliminating our distinctiveness. It comes from understanding and embracing that we are all different and created uniquely in the image of God. You know, true unity is not a work of man. It is a work of the Spirit of God in Christ. You know, this speaks to Mark Sayer. He's a social commentator and a pastor. And he said, it's the desire of the world to have the kingdom of God without the king. To put it another way, in this post-Christian world, the world wants the promises of God, but without the God who promises it. That's really what's happening here. So you hear unity, unity, and it's like, yeah, well, I, I kind of get it, but... You're missing the point. It will never work. You only have to read about where we're heading to to understand that. And so I want us to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 to 27 just briefly. This is a very famous passage when it talks about the body. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. And then it says, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, then that would not make it any less part of the body. What is this talking about? We have been created distinct, just as the Trinity is distinct in roles and persons, so have we be but we are one in the body of Christ. And I say this, why am I laboring this point? Because I want us to embrace the distinctivenesses of who we are. This is not about making us all the same. It's understanding that we can be united under Christ in our differences, in our uniqueness, in a recognition that don't look at your neighbor sitting next to you and say, wow, look at the gifts they've got. Look, they're doing an amazing job. No, God's given you an amazing gift to do an amazing job for such a time as this. Just as, just as Mordecai said to Queen Esther, hey, for such a time as this, you're queen. Hey, for such a time as this, you've been created for a reason and for a season. Don't swim in someone else's lane. Embrace the uniqueness that God has created in you and the distinctiveness which you have. There is something so beautiful in that. And over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack that in more detail. 
So that's the first thing that struck me as I looked at the relationship of the Trinity, of, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, was that model of distinctiveness and the ability for us to embrace that and recognize that unity can happen in that place of distinctiveness. Which leads me on to the second point, which is, what is our relationship with one another then? Look around. Now, look around the room. Now, go, go for it. Look around these people. Aren't they all handsome and, and attractive and beautiful and all that kind of stuff? Yes, they are. They're lovely. Good. I'm glad you looked around. Um, so what does it mean for us then? What can we learn? Number one, one in image. We are all to grow in the likeness of Jesus and to be his image bearers. There we go. We are, we are being conformed to the likeness of our son, of his son. That is how we are in Christ. Number two, one in love. Listen, guys, we've got to love one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Next week, we have the wonderful John and Andrea Taylor Cummins speaking on what it means to love well. That is going to be amazing. These guys are experts in that field. And we're going to unpack. Yeah, let's give them a hand as well. <clears throat> you know, their TED Talk on Four Habits of Effective Relationships is over two million views. Their book, Four Habits of Successful Relationships, you can buy, is an amazing book. And so what does it mean to love each other well? Because if we can't, how on earth can we talk about Jesus? We need to love each other well. And it's not easy. But by the power of the Holy Spirit and by being intentional, we can love each other well. Number three, one in purpose. Just as the Father and the Son are one in purpose, we are called to be one in purpose as well. Romans 11.6 talks about the fact that we've all been given the gifts of grace, different gifts, for one purpose. What is our purpose? To make Christ known. To bring Him glory. You know, it says in the Greater Catechism, which is the Westminster Catechism, and it says, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That should be our unified purpose. We are here to glorify him who created us and to love him. And to enjoy him. It's not a chore to be a follower of Jesus. Number four, number five. No, number four. One in authority. Did you know you've been given authority in the name of Jesus? Did you know that? So may they be as one as we are one. It means you get the same authority that comes in the name of Jesus. Jesus himself said you'll do even more things, greater things than I have done. Why? Because of the power of the name of Jesus. When Jesus said on the cross it is finished, he meant it. He meant it. It is finished. He beat death. The price was paid and we could walk in the fullness and the measure that God has for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why we are anointed to fulfill the Great Commission. God doesn't say, go uh, and make disciples of every nation, but you're going to have to figure out how to do that on your own. He doesn't say you're going to need to go to the local shop and here's your shopping list and go buy the stuff that you need to do that. He gives us a toolkit called the gifts of the Spirit to enable us to do that. I've got to be mindful of the time, so I better move on. I'm just giving you a taster because on this section, this is what we're going to unpack over the next few weeks. One, through dependency. You know, can I just say something? We are called to be dependent on each other. Now, that is strange in our modern culture because that is a sign of weakness, isn't it? And I've got to be strong and I've got to be independent. Well, G Jesus, the son, was dependent on his father. And so we are dependent on our father through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also are dependent on each other. We can't do what God has called us to do if we don't lean on each other. 
and recognize the gifts in one another and say, you know what, you're just so great at the way you communicate and speak and say, why don't we do this thing together? Or, you know what, I really need some of your wisdom right now. I recognize the wisdom of God on you. Can you speak to me in this situation? That is what it means to be one as a father and son are one. But I reckon, I know in my own life, I put these walls, these kind of invisible barriers between me and other people. If they only knew that I needed help, man, they would not think I'm the leader that God's called me to be. What else have we got? One through honor. Just as the Father and the Son honor one another. We are called to honor one another, guys. To put each other first. Put one another first. Honor people. We, we, as you know, Steph and I lived in Australia for seven years. We had our two daughters there. Um, and there was something called the tall poppy syndrome, which is if you saw someone flourish, boy, you wouldn't even mention it or encourage them. And we, we actually, we, we kind of fall into that. Why can't we encourage one another and, and honor one another for the, the, the work that God's doing? Why? Because we, we're so wrapped up in our insecurities because we look at somebody else. We don't even want to go there and say, I want to honor that person for what they're doing because it just feeds the insecurity when we look at other people. But you see, if you recognize that you're created uniquely and distinctively and given a unique plan and purpose, you can say, wow, they're doing amazing. I just want to honor you for what you're doing there. And lastly, one through sacrifice, to serve one another. You know, Trevor in a few weeks is going to talk about what that means to serve one another and to sacrifice. Listen, this place exists because of the sacrifice and the servant hearts of many people. But the truth is we don't have enough people serving. It's a reality. Maybe you walk into this building, you think, wow, they've got it sorted. I don't need to do anything. That's not right. You know, as we think about going to new services later in the in two services and later in the year, we need more people to serve. But you see, it's not just about we want your, you to do work. It's about speaking into a heart attitude. That if we are one, just as the Father and Son are one, are we willing to sacrifice our comfort and our time and our energy and our money for others? Are we, are we truly willing to do that? Good. That's just an overview of, therefore, what it means for us to be one just as the father and son are one in the relationship that they model. So let me lead to the three questions, and I'm going to switch metaphors as I put the landing gear down. <laughs> uh, thank you. As we approach the runway. Uh, why is being one important? Well, the scriptures say it. Two reasons. Number one, that we would be made perfect. Jesus said here they would be one so that they would be made perfect. Listen, God has given us a garden called the body and the family to grow us and to bear fruit of the Spirit. You don't just wake up all of a sudden and go, oh, I'm more patient. Oh, I'm more loving. Oh, I'm more like Jesus today. That was amazing. He does that through family, through body, through church unity. That is how the Spirit of God works in us to conform us to the likeness of His Son. And you see, what Jesus is saying here is, I want to perfect them, so I'm going to put them in the garden called the body of Christ. And it is in that place that as they seek to be one with one another, that they would be made perfect in me. Number two, Jesus says, listen, that the world may know that you have sent me. Listen, guys. If we want to reach, extend our reach to reach the lost, we're doing some amazing, amazing things. Creating new spaces and places, new spaces. You know, next door, the carpet's down already in the youth auditorium, and eventually I'll be this week. It's almost ready. And it's not too late if you want to give to what is just an amazing opportunity to create your own legacy, for us to extend our reach, and you can do that. You can find out more on the reach stand over there with the reach brochures. And we're creating new places. AJ and Jenna are our new Hatfield site pastors who are launching a new site later in the year. Amen. Whoop. We love you guys. But here's the thing. 
that doesn't mean anything if we can't love one another and be one just as the Father and Son. We might as well just go home. I mean, what does Paul say? It's just like a clashing gang. You can have the amazing skills and giftings, but there's no love. It's just a noise. Listen, I'm going to end with this and invite the band up. When the world looks at the church, it should see something different and unique and something which is attractive that speaks to the core heart desire that the world has. We are not a social club based on other people like ourselves. We are not a club based on a shared interest. We are not a political party based on a shared ideology. We are not a forum based on shared ideas. We are a body of people and one by the Spirit of God. We are the body of Christ. It's something so unique that if the world could see it properly, they'd be like, I want that. Because my club is a terrible place. And that political party always seems to disappoint me. And that club and that forum and they just want me to be the same as everyone else and they're trying to counsel me out, etc., etc. Where can I go that they love me for who I am? Where can I go that I can be part of something greater than myself? Where can I go that I feel that unity of love and of honor and of dependency? Where can I go? Where can I go? And you see, Jesus knows and he said, listen, if you guys, us, if you all who believe are one like the Father and Son are one, then the world will know that I have sent you. And so this is why this is so important and a word for this season, church. That God is saying to us all, I want you to be one just as I and the Son are one. Are we willing to embark on that journey? Are we willing to say, I want to give it what it takes? I'd like us to stand as I pray and before we worship. Because it leads us on to the fourth and final question that this text poses, which is this, how is this achieved? Because, boy, it sounds difficult. Jesus said this in verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I give them that they may be as one as we are one. It's a work of the Spirit that we become one spiritually. But we have a choice as to whether we surrender in that and say, Holy Spirit, would you come? You know, it says in 1 John 1, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Are we going to walk in the light of God's truth? Are we going to open our hearts and our desires to walk fully with Jesus and become like him in order that we may have fellowship with one another just as the Father and the Son have fellowship. Listen, this Christian walk, you know, if you've been walking it for any length of time, you'll realize that this is not necessarily easy. It takes effort. I mean, Paul said you have to run the race with perseverance and commitment. If you think Christianity is just about sitting back and expecting a better life, then you, that's not what it's about. I mean, Jesus said you pick up your cross He's like, what? I thought, I thought following you was about you and your cross, Jesus. He's like, no, no, no. You've got your part to play too. You've got to die to yourself, die to flesh, die to those sinful desires, die to that propensity to not want to love one another. And I said, I want to lead us in a prayer. And if, if this resonates with you, then you can just respond in your own way as I pray. Lord God, would you forgive me? as I have not really sought fully to be one with my fellow believers in Christ. 
Lord, there are so many areas that I recognize that I cut myself off from, whether it be weaknesses or insecurities or fear or just damn right don't want to sacrifice anymore. Whatever it might be for me, Lord, I ask your forgiveness. And I pray, my prayer request, Lord, my my ask, Lord, is that you would breathe into this place a new season of unity, of love, and of honor, that the world would know that we are yours and that you have been sent by the Father. And if that's you and you want to say, sign up for that, then in these quiet moments, why don't you just respond to the Lord where you are and say yes to him. Come Holy Spirit. Oh, come Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. Pour out your glory upon us, Lord.